Welcome to the Hope Fellowship Podcast, where you can listen to our weekly walk through the Bible. We do hope you enjoy your time with us today. Please check us out at hopehogansville.com. And if you feel led to support our ministry, please click the link in this episode's description. Now here's this week's walk through the Bible. Um, I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles to Jude chapter 1 verse 23. Jude chapter 1 verse 23. It says this, save others, snatching them out of the fire and on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Let's open with prayer and then we'll expound upon this a little bit. God, thank you so much for allowing us to be together as as a body today for worshiping and song, um, for giving us the privilege of um, praying for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, I pray that you would help us all in our faith. Help us to walk in your ways. Help us not to falter or waver because of the things going on in this world and the sin that we are faced with every day. I pray that you would create in our hearts a steady, um, and firm faith that is growing in grace uh, because it's founded on the rock of our Savior Jesus Christ. I pray that anyone who is doubting or struggling or walking near the flames of your judgment today, that you would draw them out and lead them to salvation. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Jude chapter 1 uh, We've been walking through this. We are drawing really close to the end of these verses. Um, just by way of reminder, Jude has, uh, is addressing specifically the believers, the church. Uh, he calls them the called, the beloved in God the Father, the kept for Jesus Christ. He calls them saints. He desires to talk to them about their common salvation, but he feels the need to uh, appeal to them that they contend earnestly for the faith to uh, fight for the faith which was once for all handed down to all the saints. And the reason for that is because certain persons have, been, have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for condemnation, uh, but they were turning, they, he calls them ungodly persons who've turned the grace of our God into licentiousness, uh, basically a lack of self-control in the name of God's grace or using the grace of God as license to sin. And he calls them ungodly people that uh, whether they're noticed or unnoticed, their presence is affecting the Christians, the body of Christ. And then he, he details a number of uh, examples of this. Specifically, he talks about the consequences of that ungodliness and how it's affecting the church. Um, but specifically, he deals about the judgment of God upon the people who are living in this ungodliness. He talks about uh, after saving people from Egypt, he subsequently destroyed those who didn't believe. He talks about the judgment of the angels who rebelled against God. He talks about the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah um, because of their immorality. Uh, and, and he talked about how they were an example of eternal fire. Right? And then uh, he goes on talking about some, some, uh, some characteristics of these kinds of people. And he says in verse 14, it was about these men that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So the judgment of God comes and will come for those who are the ungodly, who have rebelled against God. But you, beloved, is kind of the turning point in this letter. In verse 17, he starts by saying, But you, beloved, ought to remember the words spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he's reminding them of all the things that the apostles have already said to them saying the apostles of the Lord Jesus told you that these people would be there, that you're living believers, uh, the beloved of God, the kept in Jesus Christ. You're living in a world 
full of ungodliness. You're living in a world full of scoffers and people who don't believe in God, people who are hostile towards God, people who have rejected God, not just personally and secretly, but openly, and are hostile towards you and the church as a result. He says, don't be surprised by that, beloved. But then he says again in verse 20, but you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life, and have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire, and on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. So, beloved, this is where our instructions come as a result of this warning that ungodliness is present, it's prevalent, and it does affect the believers. So here are the instructions. You have three uh, primary instructions from verse 21 through uh, 20, 20 through 21, which are to build yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, and waiting anxiously for the mercy of the Lord. All of this kind of under the banner of keeping yourselves in the love of God. So we, are, we have a most holy faith that's grounded and founded upon the rock of our Savior, Jesus Christ. But we're told and instructed to build that up. Which I think is when we, when we read this in the context with Paul's words about the church, about the building, about the faith that we have in Jesus. He's the foundation. He's the one that sets the foundation in our hearts. He's the one that secures our salvation. But the life that we live in Christ is built upon that. And Jude is telling us to contend for that faith, to fight, to build good things uh, that glorify God upon this Christian life that God has given to you and I. And then he tells us to wait anxiously and to pray in the Holy Spirit. These things are valuable tools for walking in godliness, which is the opposite of ungodliness, right? So all this is review. I've kind of preached this over and over again for the past few weeks. Um, but then you get to this passage here in verse 22 where he says, Have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Now, before I really dive into those, um, kind of wrapping up those concepts this morning, uh, I'm really glad we sang that song, um, Marvelous Grace of Our Loving Lord. Uh, I'm not sure what the actual title of that song is. I just know that's how it starts. But um, grace greater than our sin, that's it. Um, uh, the grace of our God. Um, uh, grace, grace, marvelous grace. Uh, we, we remind ourselves of that. We walk in that. We're reminded that we live and breathe by the grace of God. And this morning... Um, there is a strong and very, I think, pointed warning from Jude for believers to uh, beware of sin in our own lives and its effect on our lives. Um, and there's a, this comes blanketed in the warning of the fires of God's judgment. And I think it's important for believers to be reminded of the dangers of sin and their consequences in our lives, but not... Uh, while forgetting that we lean every day on the grace of God. So I want to just be clear as we get started that we are saved not by our good deeds. We are saved by the grace of our God through our Savior Jesus Christ, by the faith that He's created in our hearts. We believe in Him, trust in Him, and that is the rock of our salvation. That is the security of our souls. That is the righteousness that God has given to us. It's the righteousness of Jesus that we've not earned and never will be able to earn. But yet, the life we live can be marred and soiled and corrupted and polluted by sin. And there is a strong warning for believers, although our eternal salvation is secure, we cannot and should not live this life taking sin lightly. So that's kind of the direction that these verses are going. So he says in verse 22, have mercy on some who are doubting. We talked about uh, three kinds of people that are needing help, that need the mercy of God. And Jude's encouraging the church, the believers, to extend mercy on the world around them. 
and the believers within the church. Specifically, first, those who are doubting. They need the mercy of God. They need the church to extend the mercy of God because we look forward to the mercy of our Savior, Jesus Christ. He told us to be doing that. Uh, He told us to be waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. If we are waiting so anxiously and depending so much on the mercy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, ought we not to extend that same mercy to our own brothers and sisters who we see doubting or struggling? And ought we not to extend mercy to the world we we see who doubts God and doesn't believe in God to the extent that we would share the gospel with them? And then we see those who are burning. He talks about in verse 23, save others, snatching them out of the fire, which is a a clear reference to the fires of God, God's judgment. We talked about that last week, and, and this isn't new. Jude's already talked about the judgment of God and the fires of, that are illustrated by the, the fire and brimstone that was rained on Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and we talked about uh, the, the, the impending judgment and doom that comes for those who don't have faith in Jesus Christ, which is, which is terrible, but yet there's hope in our Savior Jesus. Then we talked about the believers Last week, we talked about how even for believers, uh, as exemplified in David, who was a man after God's own heart, but committed a great sin. Uh, and he committed a great sin, and as a result, his life was ravaged by the consequences of his sins. As a man after God's own heart, um, lost four of his children because of his sin. And there's this warning of the, uh, the threat of the judgment of God, even in this present life, for believers, um, just by way of consequences of walking in sin that we've been saved from. And so then here he tells us this last phrase in this warning, uh, we see those who are dangerous. So we have those who are doubting, those who are burning, and those who are dangerous. He says to have mercy On some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh, meaning that as we have mercy on the world around us, we have mercy on those who are doubting their faith. We have mercy on those who are doubting God. We have mercy on those who are close to the flames and and about to be judged for their sins for all of eternity. Or we have mercy on brothers and sisters in Christ who are about to walk into sin that's about to ravage their lives. We're having mercy on people that are living and being affected by ungodliness. There is a very, very real threat that the ungodliness of the people that we are getting close to for the sake of showing mercy to may affect our lives personally. It may rub off. It may be contagious. It may cause us to remember a sin that we had long put away and entertain the thought of those sins again. It may cause us to be tempted to dabble with something that we should never touch. And so there's this threat that uh, even in our, in, our, in our mandate to show mercy to the world, there's a potential of being affected by the world. And so Jude is telling us, have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. So they are uh, these people that we are engaging for mercy's sake are living in sin but it may be contagious, and there's a little warning there. So let's take a look at a couple of these things. Uh, first, just be, just be reminded that Jude's calling us to contend for the faith. We're fighting for the faith because as we do this, as we're building ourselves up on our most holy faith, and as we're showing mercy to the world, we need to grow in godliness because we might be polluted as we extend mercy on those who are sinful. Now, the first word I'd like to look at is that word polluted. And it really basically means exactly what it sounds like. It's to be made a little bit dirty. And as a result of being made a little bit dirty, um, you're no longer pure and it's no longer clean. It's like having a white t-shirt that gets a really small stain on it. As much as you want to ignore that tiny little stain, you can't. It's just there. It kind of ruins the whole shirt. It makes you want to not wear it and go get you another white shirt that doesn't have any stains on it. I like coffee. I ruin a lot of white things out. So I don't wear a lot of white, all right, because <laughs> I ruin it all the time. So, so um, anyways, but to be polluted biblically means to be defiled uh, by spot or stain, uh, to be corrupted, 
So it is to take something that is holy, that is pure, that is righteous, and introduce a little of something that is unrighteous or impure or unholy, which therefore makes the whole thing unholy. And as a result, he's saying, Jude is encouraging the church, beware of the garment polluted by the flesh. And so this pollution is... Uh, is a word that's being used to, to, to emphasize the danger of, and effect of sin in our lives. So there's two phrases here that I really want to break down. One, he tells us to have mercy with fear. To have mercy with fear. Um, we're extending mercy to ungodly people, and I think uh, that should come naturally to us as believers. Um, the Spirit of God dwells within us. He's creating in our heart a compassion for those who are dying, a love for those who need salvation, a desire to see those who are suffering and those who are broken be restored, first and foremost by seeing their lives um, reunited with their God in holiness and righteousness. We want to see people saved, and, and compassion is given to us by our Savior, and, he, and He's building that within us, and so we should desire to extend mercy, but we need to be fearful in getting involved in people's lives. Now, this is, this is what makes the church so unique. The fact that we are the body of Christ, and we are ambassadors of, the, of Jesus Christ, and we are a small embassy of the kingdom of God, on this earth, this fellowship, we are by nature, just by, by virtue of being a church, we are mercy to the world. By being a Christian, by being planted in this world, God is extending mercy to the lost people all around us. So for the church to remove itself from the world is to stop being what God's designed us to be. Paul even told us that we can't go out of the world we must live in this world, but we must not be of this world. And there's a bit of a difference. And so we need to be careful about removing ourselves completely from all who disregard God, all who are hostile towards God, all who, who are struggling in their, fa in their faith. It would be really easy for us as a church to simply surround ourselves with only the people who think exactly like us with only the people who believe exactly like us. And if you don't believe just like us, that's okay. This is kind of a take it or leave it kind of thing. You know, if you like us, great. If you don't, there's plenty of other places for you to go. But I think the church has a need and has a calling to be involved in people's lives who desperately need this, the truth of God. But there's danger there. And he tells us to conduct that mercy as we go out into this world into our workplaces, into our own families at times, uh, down the street, uh, wherever it may be that we go, that the Lord's called us to engage the people or be around people that don't know God. Um, we need to show mercy there, but we must be cautious and show fear. So let's take a look at this. First, we're, we should fear God. We're, we should remember that uh, we should revere God and remember that God is holy and that God is the judge. So as we get in people's lives and get to know people and build friendships with people who don't know God, we need to remember that we fear God first. A few uh, scriptures that remind us of how important that is. Uh, Matthew chapter, um, where'd it go? Matthew chapter 10 verse 28 says this. And this is referring specifically to fearing people of the world, but notice what Jesus says about that. He says, Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. So there's an instruction from Jesus that we are to fear God because God does have the power to destroy both body and soul in hell. Now let's look at another scripture from Ecclesiastes. The book of Ecclesiastes, if you read the whole thing, and if you were to go through with your pen and underline all the places where it says to fear God, you're going to find quite a few. Because it's a bit of a theme in the book of Ecclesiastes. But let's look at Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 12. He says this, Although a sinner 
does evil a hundred times and may lengthen his life, still know that it will be well for those who fear God and fear him openly. Now, notice what it says there. He he says that uh, some people living in sin may sin a hundred times, and that's kind of a figurative amount, basically meaning they're sinning a lot, and for one reason or another, it seems like they get to live a long and happy life in their wickedness and sin. And he brings that up a few times. He says, it doesn't seem to be fair trying to live a righteous life, trying to live in God's way, and I'm living in suffering. But all these other people are living in open wickedness and sin, and they seem to be happy, they seem to be prosperous, they seem to be living a long life that doesn't seem to be right. And God is reminding us through Solomon here, where he says, although a sinner does evil a hundred times and may lengthen his life, still know that it will be well for those who fear God, who fear him openly. So he's saying, practically speaking, uh, spiritually speaking, believers, you need to remember that the fear of God is still of primary importance, even if it seems that people can get away with sin just fine. We need to be reminded as we are out in the world, as we are living this life in the world, and we are watching people sin all around us, sometimes seemingly with no consequences, We need to be reminded that it is well for those who fear God. And then notice what he says in verse 13. But it will not be well for the evil man when he will not lengthen his days like a shadow because he does not fear God. Meaning that the judgment of God is definitely coming for that evil man. It may appear as though they're going without consequence. It may appear as though life is pretty good and they're getting away with these particular sins. And it may cause you to think, you know what, it might not be that big a deal. And it might cause you to be tempted to walk a similar road from some of these of some of these people that we observe around us who don't fear God. But Ecclesiastes, uh, Solomon's reminding us through Ecclesiastes that we need to be reminded that, yes, it may appear that way, but the judgment of God still comes. And it is still better for those who live in fear of God and fear him openly. Now, to be even more clear, he ends the whole book that way. Ecclesiastes, uh, this is chapter 12, verse 13. He says, the conclusion. So the book of Ecclesiastes is Solomon's, he's, he's reasoning. He's reasoning with himself. He's reasoning with God. He's he's asking himself questions. He's using logic. And he's saying, I see this here, but then I see this here. This makes sense, but this doesn't make sense. All this just, it's vanity, but it's not really vanity. And this is how he lands. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God and keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. So when he's trying to determine what matters most in life, when he lands this book, he says the conclusion of all my reasoning, he says the conclusion is this. The most important thing is to fear God, keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. So there's a strong reminder from Solomon, considered to be the wisest man in history, aside from Christ, he is instructing us that the fear of God and the obedience to his commands, especially for us as believers in God, is of utmost importance. And that it is a reminder that there will be a judgment and our deeds will be Um, will be judged by God. So first, when we think about this concept that Jude's giving to us, having mercy with fear, as we are living in a world of ungodliness, as we move forward, as as we engage this world, as we walk in this world, live in this world, and talk to people of this world and seek to show mercy in this world, there is a danger of being affected by that ungodliness, but we need to be reminded that we must maintain a fear and reverence of God at all times. And so as this morning as I'm making these points, I'm inviting you to just pray through these things as we go, because I believe um, I could probably spend all morning on ways that we can fear God or the kinds of sins that 
we could get ourselves into. And really, you know the sins you're walking in or have walked through or may be dabbling with this morning. And my invitation to you is to not lie to yourself and so deceive yourselves, as James would say, but to, um, but to acknowledge if something is unholy and fear God. Because I think the first thing that I know for me, whenever I delve into any form of sin or stumble into sin, I think one of the first things that happens to me is that I either forget or I choose to ignore um, the judgment of God in that moment. Um, And I choose to set it aside momentarily, maybe even in the name of grace. And I think Jude has pointed out how tempting it is for us to be swayed by you know, turning the grace of God into licentiousness or a lack of self-control. And I think Jude is calling us to fear God. He's calling the church. He says, I'd love to talk to you about how wonderful our salvation is together. But I need to remind you that you need to fear God because the ungodliness around you, I fear, is affecting you in a bad way. I fear that your holy garments in Christ Jesus are being stained by the world's sins today. And so he's saying, fear God. The other is to fear sin. Uh, well, uh, yes, to fear the sin itself, not, not necessarily the, the power of sin and that we have been freed from the power of sin. We no longer have to walk in sin. We are no longer slaves to sin. We've been set free. But we, we must, I don't think we should lie to ourselves and try to pretend that it's not still powerful in our lives, that it's not still, it doesn't still at times hold sway, that it, uh, the temptation sometimes is hard to say no to. In fact, sometimes in our battles, as we're praying about things that we're tempted and dealing with, uh, sometimes we have to pray two and three and four times and get our scriptures out and begin meditating on scriptures. It becomes a battle in our mind and in our heart because it's not easy to resist those temptations. And so I believe Jude is calling us to fear God and fear sin. Here's um, another example of this. We talked about this last week when we were talking about uh, Paul's desire to, um, to win souls. Uh, and Jude instructing us to save people, snatching them from the fire. And that, that remember, that word snatch means to take hold of, to grab a hold of somebody and physically move them. To move them away from the doom. And Paul is kind of sharing a similar concept when he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse, uh, starting in verse 19, he talks about being freed from, from all men and, and the, the desire to win souls. He says, for though I am free from all men, I've made myself a slave to all. This is 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19. I've made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. What's that mean to win? It means he wants to save or to be an admi- a minister of salvation. He knows that Jesus is the one saving. He's administering the salvation by preaching the gospel. And so then he says, to the Jews, I become as a Jew so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became weak, that I may win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may be by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Now, you, you've got a several kinds of people that Paul's talking about there. He's talking about Jews, and he's talking about Gentiles. He's talking about people who are uh, making a, a concerted effort at following the law of God. He's talking about people that make no effort at following the law of God. And he is becoming like these people in some, in some circumstances in order to reach them. And this, is, this has specific implications to how he's applying the law of God in his life. And uh, I think there's a lot there uh, that surrounds things like circumcision, and that's a big discussion. Um, but uh, the, the Jews uh, believed that you must be physically circumcised in order to be, um, to be right with God, in order to symbolize that you were the people of God. And Paul was saying that circumcision is of the heart, and so it is no longer necessary. Um, but some people continued to believe in this, and so he would, um, so he would uh, come to the to the 
to the Jews approaching them and dealing with the law from, from their standpoint, from their perspective, but preaching the truth to them. But then he would come to the Gentiles, not putting the, that law of God upon them. And if you remember, there were discussions in, between Paul and Peter, where Peter was forcing Gentiles to, to be, or, or convincing Gentiles to be circumcised, because that's what was necessary in order to um, to help keep peace because he wanted to save face with the Jews. And Paul called him out on that and said, you don't, you don't do that. Don't put the law of God on, don't put that kind of law on these people because it's not what, um, it's not what it means. Now, I was very vague in all that. If you have questions about what I just said, you can approach me after church. Um, but uh, because my point really is, that Paul is making an effort to get in the lives of people that think and live and believe and act differently. But in doing that, um, he's doing it for the purpose. Look at this, um, verse 23. I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. All right, so he's doing this for the sake of the good news of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run? Now, here's, this, is, this is where we get to what we're talking about in Jude. Those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize. So he's using an analogy, a simile. You know, imagine a runner running a race. There's a prize. You want to reach the prize. You want to win the race to get the prize. Everybody wins, but only one gets the prize. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. Now he's talking about discipline and self-control and training. If you want to win, you have to train. If you want to win, you have to discipline yourself. Um, I've heard it said that uh, discipline is making yourself do the things you don't want to do so that you can become the person that you want to be. And so that, that is essentially what Paul is talking about. He's, ex, he's exercising self-control. He says, they then do it to receive a perishable wreath. So he's saying the prize was a wreath. I mean, I guess that's about as valuable as a plastic golden trophy. All right. So, but, but anyways, it meant something because it meant that they were the winner. Um, he said they, uh, they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. What's he talking about? He's saying we're running a race. We're not running a physical race. He's not telling us to be physically strong and discipline ourselves and exercise really good. Although I think there's probably, you could make a biblical case for taking good care of these temples that God lives in, but that's not what he's talking about here. What he's talking about is disciplining ourselves because we are, we are in a competition to win souls and to glorify God with the lives that he's given to us. Specifically here, he's talking about winning souls. And he is running, the race that he's talking about running is to win souls. And so he's competing. And who is he competing against? He's competing against the enemy and all that is ungodly in the world, and all the false teaching that those he's trying to win are bound by, he's competing against that, and he's, uh, he's, he's running in such a way to win an imperishable wreath. He wants to save their soul for all of eternity. And so he says, therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. He has a goal. I box in such a way. Now he's changing the analogy a little bit. That's a form of training, boxing. Um, and, you know, in this case, he says, I box in such a way as not beating the air. And that was a reference to, I think, maybe a training exercise where they would, um, they would shadow box or something like that back then for the purpose of tr physically training their bodies for running a, this type of physical race. But he says, that's not what I'm talking about either. He's talking about disciplining his soul and his mind and his body because why? Verse 27, I discipline my body and make it my slave. Now there, he, he implies that this is still very physical. He's telling his body what to do and not letting his body tell him what to do. He's choosing to make his body his slave. He's disciplining himself, which means, and this is how I describe self-control to my kids. What is self-control? It means telling yourself no. That's self-control. You need to learn how to tell yourself no. All right? That's simple, very hard to apply. So we learn that lesson every day, all right? And, uh, and I show them oftentimes how I have to learn the same lesson. So, um, so anyways, so he is disciplining his body, making it his slave. So that after, listen to this, after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. That's the scary part of this. 
He's talking about winning souls. He's talking about getting in people's lives. And he's talking about engaging people who don't know God for the sake of preaching the gospel. He's talking about disciplining himself to fight the good fight of faith and to preach the gospel so that he can win souls and save them for all of eternity. We're loving this. He's training his body. He's training his mind. He's training his soul. He's growing in godliness. But now he's worried about being disqualified. Meaning that if after he's preached for the sake of winning souls, he might do something physically with his body so sinfully that it would disqualify him from the ability to continue doing that work while he's living on this earth. He's been called to fight this fight and to win souls by way of preaching the gospel, but there is a danger of allowing sin to affect his life in such a way that he would be disqualified from that work of God of showing mercy to the world by snatching people from the flames with the gospel. He's implying that sin could cause someone to not be able to do that anymore. Now, he's not talking about losing his salvation because Paul's made it very clear what, you know, when you read his writings, he talks about where, his, where the foundation of his salvation is. It rests on the sufficiency of the blood of Jesus Christ. Nothing else is necessary. The foundation has been set not by Paul, but by Jesus. So he says saved man, but he's, he's saying that he has to discipline himself if by chance he might stumble into the sins of the Gentiles or the sins of the Jews or the sins of some of the other people that he's trying to reach and, and cause himself to be disqualified from the race. And I think, too, there's a, a terrifying lesson that I see, unfortunately, more frequently are believers that, um, that fall into sin and ruin their testimony and walk away from, uh, from their godly life. And it's devastating, and it hurts, um, and it's harmful. And I think that Jude is giving the church a healthy warning. And I, when I read this again, just like I said last week, when I read these, I feel like, I feel like I just need to put this down and let somebody else preach this because I need to spend some time praying through this myself. Because uh, these are, to me, terrifying implications for believers. I don't, I'm not worried that I'm going to lose my salvation, but I am worried that my lack of self-control might allow me to cause damage to myself, my family, and my church, or the glory of God because of my sins. And so I want you to consider what it means to fear God and fear sin, fear disqualification. The last thing I want to look at this morning is what it means to hate the garment, to hate the garment that's polluted by the flesh. Um, now the garments, uh, you'll, you can read about garments throughout the Bible. Um, garments were... Uh, Typically, it could be a cloak. It could be anything that they wore. I think in a lot of circumstances, whenever it's used for illustrative purposes, it's kind of strange, but it's used in reference to undergarments, the garments that are worn closest to the skin. All right, And these garments, when they became uh, soiled by the body or by the skin, they were to be destroyed or burned. The law of God um, instructed that. Um, so, And it was for the purpose of... Um, preventing diseases and sicknesses and all those kinds of things, as well as uh, all throughout, it was, a, um, it was symbolic of our need to address sin and how it affects our lives. Whenever it talks about the garments in Scripture, a lot of times it refers, uh, it's being used as an, as an outward illustration of an inward condition. The garment and its purity or its cleanliness or its holiness, so to speak, uh, is, was used to represent the purity and the cleanliness and the holiness of the soul. And so whenever he talks about garments, uh, whenever you see that in Scripture, that's kind of where it's going. So garments, they were coverings. They were often affected by the flesh, and, they, and there was need to change those garments regularly. And if they were soiled, they needed to either be cleaned or destroyed. All right, so that's very important, uh, a little bit to understand what's going on here. Now, um, one scripture I think that really helps to, to get the picture of this is Zechariah chapter 3. 
Now, I think Jude was thinking about Zechariah chapter 3 when he wrote this because, uh, and I, you know, whenever I read, read the commentaries, other uh, Bible teachers about this, they brought this up. Um, uh, most all other Bible teachers that I've looked at have said, they quoted this passage that goes along with this, and there's a feeling that Jude had either read it or had heard it in his teachings, but he knew of this prophecy from Zechariah chapter 3, and this is what it says. He says, chapter 3, verse 2, the Lord, well, let's look at verse 1. All right, so God is prophesying to, uh, um, to Israel through Zechariah, and he's calling them to repent. But this is a very interesting concept, uh, conversation that takes place between God and Satan and, Zech and Joshua, uh, a priest. Now, this, uh, this, you don't read this kind of scenario very often in Scripture, conversations between God and Satan. So it happens a few times, but look at this one. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. This is not a is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now remember what Jude said? Jude said, Save others, snatching them out of the fire, and on some have Mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. We see both of those concepts right here where he refers to Israel as being a brand plucked from the fire. Remember we talked about that last week. A brand is a coal that's really hot. It's been burning. And, and Israel was a, one of the people groups that, um, that was on this planet, doomed to die in their sins, except that the Lord called them out of this world uh, to be his people and to provide for them salvation. So they were a brand plucked from the fire. And then he says, look at this, now Joshua was clothed in filthy garments standing before the angel. Now I believe it wasn't, now maybe he was wearing dirty clothes, but this is this is speaking symbolically of the condition of his soul. He was standing before a holy God as an unholy man and in need of being cleansed spiritually. All right, and here are the clothes kind of being used as a representation of that. Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments standing before the angel. He spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying, Remove the filthy garments from him. Again, he said to him, See, I have taken your iniquity. There it is. So he's, he's making the connection by removing the garments. He's taking the iniquity away. I have, I have taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festal robes. So he's taking away the old garments and putting on new garments, uh, which I believe this is a this is a clear picture of what Jesus, our Savior, does for us with his robes of righteousness. And that our robes, sinful robes, have been removed and we've been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Our iniquities have been taken away. And that has been accomplished by Jesus. Verse 5, then I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments white excuse me, clothe him with garments while the angel of the Lord was standing by. So here is this picture of being plucked like a brand from the fire, saved from the judgment of God, clothes being changed, iniquities being taken away. So here you have this, this, uh, this righteousness being applied to Zechariah um, and illustrated by the changing of clothes. And we have Paul, who has written to us as an apostle, instructing us to put off the old and put on the new in our way of life. Now, we need to recognize that there's a differentiation between the complete work of Christ that's been done for our soul. In our salvation, we are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But while we walk this earth, the, the sins of our flesh continue to tempt us and uh, like the flames of hell licking at our heels at times. I think about the uh, story of Jesus washing the disciples' feet where he told Peter, you're already clean, but you have need of your feet to be washed. I mean, are, we're already clean. We already have the robes of righteousness. But as we walk through this life, our feet get dirty. 
We get touched by the iniquities of sin, by wickedness and iniquity and sin uh, in, this, in this world, and it has to be dealt with. Daily, we come to Jesus for our feet to be washed for him in repentance, asking him to forgive us and cleanse us of those sins, knowing that we still wear the robes of righteousness of Jesus Christ, and our security and our eternity has been set for him, and we look forward to that with hope, but yet there is a sin that we must be warned about and must be dealt with today. James chapter 3, verse... James chapter 3, verse 6 says this. This passage in James is about... Um, the effects of sin in the life. He says, in verse 2, he says, we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's, he's a perfect man, able to bri bridle the whole body. Now, if, um, uh, yeah, so, and then he uses several illustrations there, and he's talking about uh, sin in the life. If you look back at chapter 1 in James 2, verse 27, he says, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. But then he gets to verse 6 and he says, A tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. And I think these are all the, how, the horses with the bits, the ships with the rudders, the fire and the forest, the tongue in the life. All of these are illustrations of, of the effect of sin in our lives. Meaning that pure religion is to live our lives unstained by the world. There's that unstained, that concept of a stained and polluted garment again. And so James is telling us that, listen, uh, just like a, the tongue can, can direct, um, can set on fire the course of your life, all it takes is a, is a word spoken that shouldn't have been spoken and it can set your life in a totally different direction. And we see that playing out in our world with social media and, uh, and uh, every day we see people making statements they should never make and they're immortalized forever because they're written down and given to the world to see. But it sets on fire the courses of our lives in a fire represented by the fires of hell. And so he's saying uh, that sin affects our entire life that way. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, um, verse 6, gives us another little picture of that. Um, and this is not just about how sin affects our lives personally, but it's about how sin can affect the whole church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6, he says, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? So there's another analogy, right? And that's a leaven is yeast. A tiny bit of yeast makes the dough rise. All it takes is a tiny amount, right? So he says, A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. That's why... Uh, that's why they were supposed on Passover. They were supposed to eat the flat the flat bread with no leaven, because the uh, the bread the leaven symbolized the sin and how we were supposed to remove that from our lives. And so, having a flat bread with no leaven in it, if I can get these words out, uh, was symbolic of us putting the sin out of our lives. He says here, he says here in verse. Seven, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened for Christ. Our Passover also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, let me give you really quick a little context. Um, and again, this is, I could probably spend a few weeks preaching just this passage because there's a lot here. But there was an issue in Corinth. There were believers that were openly living in sin. Uh, in fact, he describes their sin as being so bad that even the ungodly people thought it was bad. All right? Um, so the people in the church were living in open sin, and he was calling them to address that. And he was saying, listen, I wrote to you in my letter um, uh, not to associate with immoral people. And he says, I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with covetous or swindlers or idolaters, for then you'd have to go out of the world. He says, I'm not, he's not telling you not to associate with people who are immoral. 
He's saying, but you need to be careful because when sin creeps into the church, it will affect the entire church and it needs to be dealt with. And he gives some pretty clear ways for how to deal with that in the church. But look at what happened though. They were supposed to be coming together for the purpose of celebrating the feast of Passover, celebrating their salvation. And they were supposed to be celebrating their salvation together as a body, which is what we do every Lord's Day. We gather together. And when we gather in community groups and when we gather individually together, we're celebrating our salvation together and we're worshiping together and we're spurring one another on to love and good deeds and we're supposed to do that in in sincerity and in truth but because of the sin that was present in the church they were celebrating their salvation with malice and wickedness in the church it had poisoned the body and so Jude telling us to contend for the faith, and while we are showing mercy, show mercy with fear, hating the garment that's polluted by the flesh. I think there is a warning here that the flesh can affect the, not just our lives personally, but also the church as a whole. And that's why individually we must take it very seriously when we are struggling with sin, even if it means we need to come to a brother or sister in Christ and ask them for help and ask them for prayer. James tells us that if one among you is sick, let him come to the brethren and let him come to the elders and let them lay hands on them and pray for them. And I believe that could be physical sickness, but it could also very well refer to any spiritual sickness we're struggling with that we ought to be able to come to one another and pray for help so that we could eradicate sin from our lives so that we can live the life that God's called us to live. Now, um, as we kind of wrap this up, um, I thought thought it was kind of a good illustration. Um, I was thinking about doctors and the work that they do for us. Um, Doctors, their primary job is to show mercy. They put themselves right in somebody's face who is exhibiting symptoms of bad things. And uh, their job is to diagnose those symptoms and to provide some form of a prescription for healing and for help. Doctors do good by showing mercy, but in doing that, they are being exposed to whatever it is we're sick with. They're putting themselves in harm's way, so they wear masks and they wear gloves and they they wear scrubs and they have to wash and they have to go through very careful procedures to make sure that they don't carry it home, catch it, carry it home and give it to their families. They have to go through great efforts to try to make sure that they don't, they don't, they aren't affected as they're showing mercy to people who are very sick. I just thought that was very similar to what we're called to be doing as believers with the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're going to people who are very sick in their sins. And because we love them and because we care about them, we put ourselves in harm's way by getting close to them in their lives. But we must take godly precautions. We must strengthen our faith, build ourselves up in our most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, keeping ourselves in the love of God. If we are actively disciplining ourselves in those things, like Paul is disciplining himself to win souls so that he's not disqualified along the way, we must be growing in godliness so that as we are showing mercy, we do not fall prey to the symptoms that are brought to our doorstep or that we have gone and, and encountered. So we live and engage this world for mercy's sake, but we are exposed to sin. The question is, are we, are we pretending like it's not that big a deal and it's not going to affect us? Are we going on in the grace of God, rejoicing in our salvation, assuming that it's not going to hurt us? Paul says, if you think you stand, take heed lest you fall. So a few applications to pray about through these verses. Um, To remember that we live and engage this world for mercy's sake, but we are exposed to sin. We must show mercy and love to sinners while continuing to hate sin and its effects. It's good for us to love sinners, but we have to continue hating the sin. I think even in the church, there have been some movements within modern churches, and I think throughout church history, there's always been um, Christians who have tried to make an attempt at making excuses for living in sin 
in the name of trying to reach lost people. That let's just dismiss the sin. It's not that big a deal. Let's focus on the heart alone. Now, we must focus on the heart, but we must also beware of the consequences of, its, of the sin. We must hate even the slightest effect of sin in our own hearts, minds, lives, and the church. The garment wasn't exactly, wasn't, the garment was soiled because of the sin of the body or because of the, the issue with the body. And I think the garment kind of represents the outward, it, it represents the outward showing of what's on the inside. Our behavior, our thoughts, our actions, our beliefs, our way of life can be affected and we must hate even the slightest effect of sin in our lives. We must contend for our faith, building others up, praying in the Holy Spirit, keeping watch for our future because we are in danger of being disqualified as we extend mercy to those in doubt and, and in danger of God's judgment. Um, then my, my last encouragement to you is if you are living in sin, if you do see sin in your life, to repent of that sin and seek the righteousness of Christ. If you're a believer, give thanks to God for forgiveness. Cry out to him for forgiveness and ask him for the power to repent and change those ways. Grow to a place in which you hate that sin as much as you know God hates it. And then I'd like to read um, Psalm 23, which I started with this morning as we close. Uh, excuse me, 32. Psalm 32, and this, is, this has several pieces to it. This is something for you to pray as I read um, in regards to sin and confession. It starts out with the consequences of sin. David, or the, um, David is expressing the consequences of sin in his own life. He confesses. Then he reminds himself of what he is assured of in God's power. And then there is an instruction from God regarding those sins. And I think this is a really great pattern for us. If we are considering the words of Jude this morning, praying through sin and its effect in our lives as believers, I think this is a really great scripture to meditate on. So I'd like to read it. You might bookmark it and spend some time on it this week. It says this, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. That's the Holy Spirit of God providing conviction when we as believers sin. That's what I talked about sometimes for us, uh, snatching people from the fire. We're working on the lost. We're working on the believers. But the Spirit of God is snatching us from the fire daily. Verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. There it is, that assurance that even in his sin, the deliverance of God is with him. And this is for believers, because I believe if, if you're not walking with the Lord, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, then the only thing you face right now in your sins is the judgment of God. But there's hope if you would cry out to Jesus for salvation. Then he says this, this is the instruction for us. Verse 8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be as the horse or as the mule which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check. Do you notice that? He's, he tells us not to be like a, like a mule who needs a bit in its mouth to be told where to go. He's, God's giving us instructions and he's watching. He wants us to walk in his ways freely and willingly. 
from our hearts. And then he says, many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. So there is hope, there is instruction here. If, we, if you have walked in sin in any way, I would encourage you to identify that and confess it to the Lord as sin and cry out to Him for forgiveness and for help by the power of His Spirit to repent. If you are not a believer and listening this morning, I would encourage you to cry out to the Lord Jesus for salvation. And He will save you and He will forgive you. And as we sang today, the marvelous grace of our loving Lord uh, is what sustains us day after day. So believers, I'd like to invite you to land on that today. Be warned that sin is dangerous. Don't entertain it, but live every day leaning on the grace of God. Let's pray together as we meditate on these and sing together. Thank you for listening to this week's Walk Through the Bible with Hope Fellowship. I leave you with these words from Numbers 6, 24 through 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace.